Hello and welcome back to the album years uh, with myself and, and Tim. And we're halfway through 1977 and this is episode three of 1977. Now, obviously, this is a this is a very, very key year for us. Yeah. And as you pointed out at the beginning of, of episode one, everything seemed to be every genre seemed to be on fire. Looking at this list of albums, how many albums have been important within the genre that they are and are considered classics within the genre and as you say across so many genres i mean if we if we went you know to you know maybe some a year in the 80s or a year in the 90s we might find there was a particular genre that was really on fire at that particular time and all the other genres less so here it's like everything isn't it? everything's on fire in in 1977 so even allowing, as you say, for the kind of nostalgic attachment to the music. And I was nine this year, so I, mm. I didn't know any of these records at the time. Well, OK, a few. I knew hardly any of these records well, at the time. Well, same, the same here. You know, I was 13 and, of course, I was learning. And some of these artists I knew, but actually a lot of them, I discovered them in the next five years, mm. really. That was when there was a greater period of musical education. So, yeah, it wasn't like it was hitting me at the time. Of course, there are some exceptions to that. You know, Pink Floyd, they were a band I was aware of and I had Wish You Were Here, which I thought was a magnificent album. But weirdly, I didn't buy Animals when it came out when I was 13. I didn't know it was released. So I didn't buy the music papers. So one of the genres and, and one of the and some of the albums that I was very much aware of in mm-hmm. 1977, because my parents had these records, was... Not all of the artists, but certainly the Bee Gees and Donna Summer. My parents loved mm-hmm. these records, which were, if you like, the the kind of um, poster children for what became known as disco music. Saturday Night Fever obviously being the soundtrack to the... And of course, it's, technically, it's a various artists album. But most of the big hits on that record were written by the Bee Gees, if not performed by the Bee Gees. And the Donna Summer records from the period, my parents also had records that I remember yesterday, Once Upon a Time. I remember hearing things that I feel love. And this was a big part of my life, being a nine-year-old, hearing these records. Mm. And I still think of them as absolute masterpieces. So disco music, disco obviously... um, perhaps has has something in common with progressive rock in the sense that it became very quickly um the antichrist in the in the eyes of the of the hipsters and the tastemakers didn't it i think in america they had that you know disco sucks movement um yeah. in 1979 where people were encouraged to bring along their disco records to american football matches to be burned or baseball matches or whatever. Yeah. that's pretty extreme that but in a way that also indicates how dominant it was in mainstream pop culture for for those few years that people would get so irate about it that they would feel like they had to kick back against it. The Bee Gees obviously, um, you know, had a, a band that had been around for many years or 10 mm. years by the time, or more than 10 years by the time and struck, you know, had some pretty lean years where they were struggling to find their direction. And suddenly they find themselves at the cutting edge of this new musical genre disco music and in many ways their records come to define perhaps along with the early chic records come to define what we now think of 
as disco music. I still absolutely love this kind of music. Yes, you can look at it from another direction and say it's a bit kitsch, it's a bit cheesy. Lyrically, it's not the most sophisticated. But there's a sense of joy that comes through this music that yeah. I find absolutely irresistible. What, what's your... Well, I, again, I was kind of a fan at the time. And I bought a few of the Bee Gees singles. Um, I really liked Donna Summer and I Feel Love. I thought it was a, mm. a remarkable piece of music. And this was before I'd read that Brian Eno thought it was the future. You know, this was mm. just something that you heard. And it was exhilarating and different. And obviously, in retrospect, you hear that it's that kind of uh, electronic innovation that you're hearing in craft work combined with the New York clubs. It's such a mm. great combination. And I think I was also kind of attracted because we were saying, you know, why wasn't I attracted, let's say, to Slaughter and the Dogs, but I could buy Once Upon a Time by Donna Summer. And again, I think there was a kind of lavish, beautiful ambition. Um, and Obviously, she did around this time as well, her version of MacArthur Park, which was a song that I'd always mm. loved. That was one that was in my parents' record collection. I thought it was a magnificent piece of work. Anyway, the Richard Harris uh, version, I, you know, I'm presuming you're yeah, yeah, well aware yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah. And the Donna Summer version, again, She, I, I, I loved these epic disco excursions, which in their own way were like kind of adventurous journeys that were you know when you say there's progressive rock link i think the link is probably closer to the electronics of say tangerine dream and Kraftwerk, but also a band like pink floyd where in effect they investigate one or two ideas over a long period of time when i'm yeah. listening to donna summer albums there's a connection and there are beautiful texts in those records as well well almost all the donna summer records from the period are concept records yeah so you've got the four seasons of love which came out in 1976 the year before this which is four 10 minute pieces spring autumn summer and mm. what's the one i'm missing winter <laughs> thank you uh, spring autumn summer and winter you've also got albums like i remember yesterday which is a concept record where each track on the record is supposed to be a pastiche of a different decade mm. so what's fascinating about that is this is why georgia moroda came up with i feel love is they got to the end of the side and they needed something that would represent the future and they came up with i feel love and you you, you mentioned mm. that brian Eno considered it to be the future of music and of course it's proved to be the case i mean sure. in some ways that track you can trace all of electronic music and all dance music mm. that's come in the wake of that track back to that moment of I Feel Love, the four to the floor, the disco hi-hat, the electronic mm. pulse, the simplicity of the of the melody, but the, the kind of hookiness of that melody. Sure. And Once Upon a Time, another double concept record. <laughs> I mean, very prolific during this Unbelievable. Period as well. Made in the same year as mm. I Feel Love. There's actually one track on, on Once Upon a Time which kind of is, is related to I Feel Love, which is a track called Now I Need You. Again, very electronic. But there are other tracks on that record that are pure R&B, pure disco, pure orchestral, Carpenters-esque in a way. Mm. A concept record um, called Once Upon a Time, a fairy tale told through the medium of disco music. And beyond. But there was always ambition because obviously, although it's a more organic album, you know, with Love to Love You Baby, which again, it's an epic piece of work which builds and builds and builds. Yeah, I mean, the title track of that record is still one of my, my yeah. touchstones, really, in terms of my musical DNA. It's a track I used to hear my parents playing all the time, a 16 minute long, side long piece, 
which just took you on a journey. And and that's really been the hallmark of everything I think I've really re- responded to, a lot of what I've responded to subsequently. And it's interestingly, it's the thing that kind of Dark Side of the Moon, which my dad used to listen to, and Donna Summer, which my mum used to listen to, it's the thing which they had in common. The idea of the album as a continuum, as yeah. a musical journey. Well, I think also actually with us, I mean, it's interesting that these were things that, you know, we both found separately. We were in different parts of the country. But for me, Donna Summer, Pink Floyd, and I'd say John Barry as well was a big thing. I think that's possibly for you as well. I think cinematic music. It was odd that we had quite an unusual collection of three influences mm. in a sense that defined early adolescence you know mm. um yeah i mean I was, I was very drawn to these i mean my uh, parents weren't necessarily buying the sort of floyd or, or donna summer so i had to kind of discover this stuff myself and the donna summer mainly it was, it was quite cheap you're talking cutout bins but you know in a place in manchester the yanks the famous shop the cutouts the donna summers would often be quite cheap and a lot of funk and disco albums would be so you know they were around in the shops but not necessarily the most expensive albums because i think they were massive sellers i mean that's the yeah. thing they were they were being produced in large quantities unlike perhaps some of the the punk records which kind of remained you know underground niche, niche yeah. sold by smaller independent record stores these were big records. These were records you could buy in Rumbelows, in Woolworths, in yeah. Smiths, in you know, and and they were big. I mean, obviously the BG Saturday Night Fever for for a long time, I think was the best selling album of all time. Right. Um, it's it's been overtaken now. It's it must still be one of the top ten best selling albums of all time. It sold ridiculous amounts, ridiculous amounts. This was as mainstream as it was possible to be. And what's fascinating about Saturday Night Fever is the Bee Gees who wrote most of it, who recorded and sang the biggest hits of all from the soundtrack, How Deep Is Your Love, Staying Alive, Night Fever, More Than A Woman, You Should Be Dancing, were a band that had spent the preceding at least five years in the wilderness as a band that had had big success in the late 60s mm. and even a few big hits in the early 70s. I mean, you think of those early hits like got to get a message, Massachusetts. This band were big, you know, they were seen as the sort of the new Beatles at the time briefly. Yeah, yeah. And then in the seventies, they kind of disappeared. They stopped having hits. And then suddenly, I mean, there's a little bit of a preamble to yeah. this. They had, a, they had a big hit with Jive talking from the main course record, but suddenly Saturday night fever and they've completely reinvented themselves mm redefine themselves and they find themselves as the the torchbearers for a style of music that actually might have seemed like a uh, a bit of a burden mm. a little bit further down the line because they became so identified with disco even though they never really did disco music outside of this these handful of singles they became identified so much with the disco movement that they they spent the next 10 years going back underground but i think it's partly because it was tied in with the image you know you were talking earlier about elo and to a certain extent they were never really considered cutting edge and cool despite some brilliant productions 
because of the way they looked. And I think it was the same with Bee Gees, that actually the look was so tied in as well with the medallions, fever. The medallions, that, the hairy chest. Exactly. Yeah. The, the falsetto and, voices were very easy to make fun of too. And it also yeah. obliterated what they'd done beforehand because, you know, I think we were mentioning this earlier, that Bee Gees are one of those bands who not even quietly reinvented themselves several times mm. in, through the course of their history and did it totally convincingly, you know, from this 60s pop band to this 60s psychedelic band, you know, the likes of Odessa and so on. They took quite a few mm. creative risks and made some really interesting music. They did. Uh, but the one thing that that slightly contradicts you there is that Sheik also suffered the same backlash and yet chic were cool they did look cool and and you know they were very fashionable they were very hip at the time not like the Bee Gees. they didn't have the sort of big medallions hairy mm. chest image they had a kind of cool image you know Nile yeah. Rogers and Bernard Edwards look cool you know and they had these cool girl singers as well Sister Sledge and all this that were singing for for them and they also suffered the same backlash. I think that the backlash against disco was extreme because the success was so phenomenal. Mm. For, a, for a short period of time, everything was disco or kind of taking on. You even hear it. I mean, some of the progressive rock albums we talked about uh, in the last episode. Uh, you even hear sometimes influences from disco. It, it popped up in the strangest places. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one, for example, it's where the two interests collide. John Barry worked with Donna Summer and had disco on his cool, The Deep that's soundtrack. That's a great soundtrack. Really interesting. Deep. But yeah. again, the soundtrack is yeah. very ambitious. Yeah. Some glorious music. Yeah. But he flirts with disco. And Isn't that 1977 as well? 77, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a phenomenal album. John Barry's soundtrack to The Deep with Donna Summer singing mm. on it. The, the whole of the side one suite amazing and the and the track with donna summer yeah, is, yeah. is amazing yeah so i think you know disco obviously became a victim of its own success there was this incredible backlash i think it took years for people like donna summer chic and the bgs to come out the other end they did pay the price in a sense for i mean let's talk about chic chic's first album this year uh they came out of the the gate just on fire i mean the first First couple of singles, everybody dance, dance, dance. That's massive, million-selling hits, and again came to define that kind of New York Studio mm. Fifty Four disco sound. Joyous. It's hard, even today. It's hard. To, I've just had the pleasure of remixing a lot of these records into Atmos. It's hard to hear those records without being swept away in the sense of joy mm. and lust for life. I mean. Yes, lyrically, they're a little. You wouldn't want to read them as poetry, you know. But, but they're just phenomenal pieces of pop, in pop in its truest sense. Joyous, impossible not to like. Really, you know. This is one of the things. I mean, you know, how could you not like? How could you not love staying alive? Hmm. How could you not love everybody dance or the freak or good times? How could you not love night? You know, there, there's something about them. I, I, I don't believe anyone that would tell me that they, you know... But I think there's also quite... I always felt with Sheik there was kind of a slight kind of minor key, almost jazz sensibility. I don't know what it is. I mean, Good Times, which I absolutely adore, I've always found slightly melancholy. 
I mean, obviously, they did have their melancholic moments. At last, I am free. Yeah, beautiful song. Uh, you know, and Rose Royce, I think, was uh, they love. Pretty, don't live here anymore. Yeah, it's an amazing. Yeah. But I mean, the jazz thing obviously was key to Chic. I mean, mm. Niall's favorite musician of all time is McCoy Tyner, who was the, the pianist in, yeah. in John Coltrane's band. So there's a lot of jazz in Chic. Not so much in the Bee Gees, uh, not so much in Donna Summer, but certainly in Chic, there is that sort of jazz funk yeah. aspect. It's in the chord voicings, isn't it? As well, and, you've, and of course, then you get it in the Sister Sledge recordings as well. Also in the but, in the bass. That I mean, yeah. that's the for me, that's the epitome of jazz funk mm. bass playing. The sort of way Bernard Edwards plays the bass, the kind of popping, mm-hmm. the slapping. But but um, yeah, I mean, I think they also had two or three years where they could do no wrong mm. and the tables turned very 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 quickly uh and, and they, they fell out of favor very very quickly and of course Niall reinvented himself as a producer yeah yeah obviously let's dance Bowie but what's kind of interesting is you're saying that disco to a certain extent burned out but some artists did take it on board and quite unexpected artists so for example drinking game again Robert Fripp Discotronics. Discotronics. He incorporated, yeah. obviously, Blondie, Heart of Glass, their biggest ever success, yes. had a strong element of disco. And Talking Heads, you know, were coming out, although there was an, an Afrobeat element, they were also coming out of the disco and funk of the New York clubs. And in the early 1980s, they were the band, after disco had kind of had its day, to a certain extent, there were aspects of it in the likes of Gang of Four, Talking Heads... Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, in the 90s, Daft Punk. Yeah, in, yeah. In the 2000s, LCD sound system. I mean, disco is still, you know, I, I think you can hear disco in almost all modern electronic well, I mean, that, there's music. A, there's a great conceptual um, disco album, Love You To Bits. I don't know if you've heard that. It's a classic, that one. A total classic. Well, it's funny. I mean, that that obviously was very much our our, our idea of, of making a kind of disco symphony in the, the style of what Donna Summer was doing with with Giorgio Moroder in, in the late 70s, albeit very much our own sound, but the idea of making an extended disco journey. Yeah, I mean... It's true. I don't think Donna Summer had quite as much existential angst. No, and probably not as many uh, atonal guitar solos <laughs> or, or saxophone solos either. But but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think disco music in many ways, you could argue, is has been as influential, if not more influential than punk because it is heard in so much contemporary electronic music. Sure. And let's face it, most, you know, mainstream music these days is coming from the world of electronic music. If it's electronic music, I think it owes a debt. I mean, obviously to R&B before Mm. it and and to soul music and also, but particularly to disco. I mean, disco was the kind of the style of music that rammed home the idea of the four to the floor bass drum. You know, if you listen to those Giorgio Moroder tracks, if you listen to those chic tracks... It's that four to the floor pulse, which is the foundation of so much modern pop and modern electronic music. Bee Gees always were a little bit more sophisticated with their rhythmic, but even then, the Bee Gees, I mean, Staying Alive is one of the first songs to use a drum loop. Right. There's no live drummer on that. It is a drum loop. They wrote and recorded the song over a drum loop. In 1977, the idea of using a drum loop obviously was something that would become de rigueur in the future, but at the time was probably quite unusual. So... Anyway, you know, we're obviously we're both big fans of of disco music. I think, I think the, I think the truth of the matter is that probably like any music that became so successful, there was a lot of also rans and a lot of shit. Yeah, 
But the good quality stuff, which is the, the stuff we're talking about, the BGs, the Sheik, the Dollar Summer, Parliament, the Isley Brothers, mm. these still sound as good. Yeah, as and anything. I said, I'd throw Rose Royce into that Rose well, Royce, yeah. They still sound as infectious, as appealing and as joyous as they ever did to me, perhaps even more so. Let's talk about this, Tim. This is, this is going to be a controversial one, I think. You've put in here a category... A heartbreaking work of staggering genius. <laughs> oh, yes. Question mark. Yeah. You've only got three records in this in this category, one of which I don't know. Actually, two of which I don't know. I don't know the Beach Boys album here. The Beach Boys love you. What are you getting at here with this? The Beach subtitle? Boys love you. Well, okay. These are albums that are considered by the cognoscenti to be ageless, deathless classics. Now, if you don't know the Beach Boys Love You, it is fascinating. I'm surprised you don't know it, actually. I've tended to avoid anything post-Holland with the Beach Boys. Well, they did a couple in 78, 78 and 79 that are actually gorgeous records. I think especially their 79 record, there's a couple of... Which is called what? Tim? Come on, you forgot. I wish you. I... You see, MU is the one, 78, I right. think, isn't it? I'm going to look it up. Okay, Beach Boys, right. But carry on while I'm looking this up. But the thing is that the Dennis Wilson album, Pacific Ocean Blue, and the Beach Boys' I Love You are commonly regarded as albums you must own. They're in the list. Beach Boys' LA, the light album. That the must light be the album, about. that okay. is the one. Is and it good, fact, is it? Okay. I really like it. I mean, fact, obviously, I love the Beach has, Boys. That has a long disco track on it as well. Okay. But it has a couple of... Absolutely um, timeless. Oh, it's got the remake of Here Comes the Night from um, yeah from Wild Honey on it, hasn't it? The disco. It has I have heard that. Yeah, and that's kind of. I'm not sure if it's shit or amazing, but I, okay, you're going for it's amazing. I'm going for amazing, but yeah. also it's got a couple of of Dennis Wilson fronted ballads that probably have that feel of surfs up. There's a kind of real um, weariness and beauty. About it, but anyway, yeah. What we're I'm talking about at, the Beach Boys "Love You" in 1977, which is two no, hours. No, I'm early. talking about LA. No, no, but I'm, we need to. Yeah. Be, yeah, we need to get back on. You need on, to get back on track. Back on track. It. We're well, talking about Beach Boys "Love You," which is their 1977 album, which I've never heard. Yeah. Um, is it considered a bit of a lost, overlooked classic? Yeah. The main reason being that it was the Brian's back album. So right. I think uh, is it the 15 big ones precedes it, and 15 big ones it is. Brian is back in the band and they are in effect making a 70s version of their 60s surf music. So it's, to me, a slightly clunky reappraisal of the early 60s music with synth bass. You know, there's a few token gestures of the era. But Love You was seen as the major, major return. Lester Bangs said at the time it was the best Beach Boys album ever. And some people believe this to Christ. this day. Right. And it was written by Brian and Brian sings a lot of it. But he's clearly not in a particularly great place. So it's a very, very different. You're not going to find a Beach Boys album like Love You anywhere else in their catalogue. It's mad. It's not like 15 Big Ones. 15 Big Ones I haven't heard 15 is a Big confident ones, reappraisal okay. in the 70s style of their 60s work. Not my favourite. Like you, I think Holland 
is stunning. I think Surf's Up is a work of genius. So Love You, it's very heavy on the synth, very heavy on the bass synth, very heavy on the really clunky pop rhythms. And Wilson is at his most naive, bizarre, childlike, repetitious. So there's a track dedicated to Johnny Carson. Now, yep. their voices are knackered. It's because, they, you know, they're, they're renowned for having some of the most beautiful singing voices in pop history, right. justifiably. But the voices are kind of cocaine cracked and exhausted. Right. And they're singing these juvenile lyrics about roller skating girls or the stars in the constellation or indeed Johnny Carson. He's so funny. It sounds utterly ridiculous, but you're making it sound quite interesting. And you've got these jaunty synth basses, these jaunty rhythms. And so it's compelling. I quite like it. I've got to be honest with you. I do quite like it. And it is a really unique chapter in the band's history. Directly after it, the rest of the band jettison Brian and take over. And I think they make arguably two better albums in terms of okay i've kind of i've I've overlooked this whole i i have to my shame i've overlooked this whole era i mean i love beach boys from like 66 through to 73 i've kind of always shied away from this era because i always imagined it was going to be quite disappointing uh yeah I, i mean looking at the wikipedia page now and listening to you talk about it i'm actually quite Curious now to hear this record. One thing I love straight away about this album, 14 songs, 34 minutes long. I love yeah. that straight away. But then I'm looking at some of the titles. Honking down the highway. <laughs> honk, honking, honking down the honking highway. Honking down the highway. And does it actually honk? As, as this, is it the sound of someone honking In a my horn? mind, it honks. Yeah, it okay. honks really badly. Yeah, but the lyric, honk, honk, honking down the highway. Honking down the highway. I want to pick you up. These are not the best lyrics in the Beach Boys history, it must be said, nor are they the best songs. But as I've said, it's a totally unique, self-contained, almost DIY chapter of the band. And it is fascinating because you almost hear his mental decline in this material. Okay. Um, So I'm... I don't think it's a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. It's heartbreaking as it results, but it's really interesting. You've got me curious. I, I'm going to go and listen to this record now. I think the first track I'm going to listen to is Honking Down the Highway. That is enough to get me... I mean, sadly, that is enough to get me interested. Just like an album with a picture of Benny Hill on the front called The World of Benny Hill, yeah. which, and as you know, I've just bought. Imagine recently. a song called Johnny Carson with them going, Johnny Carson. Yeah, it sounds... Ab- and what it's about, it's, it's, there's no irony in this. Yeah. It's about how hard he works to make people laugh and well, do his I, job. I think that's what's lovely about records like this. I mean, you know, we're thinking about like the Lewis record, which we talked yeah. about on a previous episode, is that these records are utterly ridiculous. And yet the people that made them seem completely unaware of how ridiculous they are. There is a sincerity. There's a sincerity to that, and there's a dedication to their art, which you just have to go with it. And maybe this is one of those records. It's it's in it's it sounds very kitsch, but maybe kitsch in a way that actually I'm going to really enjoy. It's very electronic as well. I say lots of synths, lots of synth bass. So well, but there's there's 
there's good electronic sound and there's <laughs> and there's bad electronic sound. You know, what I'm saying yeah. is that this and Trans Europa Express are probably On a the most interesting electronic albums of 1977. Okay. And Suicide, let's say, throughout the world. So, yeah, that's Love You. It is a fascinating, self-contained chapter. And it sounds cheap as well. Not only do the voices sound cocaine cracked, not only do they sound I like that. as as if they're on the verge of dying while they're singing. Okay, you're, you're really making me interested now. The, the word cheap definitely has got me. Um, on the verge of dying. They sound like they're on yeah. the verge of dying. Yeah, that's again, <clears throat> it's a big plus. You're making it sound very appealing. I'm going to go and listen to it. Honking Down the Highway, Roller Skating Child, Johnny Carson, and the rest of the record. I mean, it's, I, can listen to, listen, I can listen to 14 tracks in barely half an hour. <laughs> So okay, let's move on. So in also in this category, you have well, let's let's follow on from yeah, the Beach Boys directly. Dennis Wilson's Pacific, is it called Pacific Blue? You've put it down as Pacific Blue. Is that what it's called? Is it Pacific Blue or Pacific Ocean Blue? Pacific Ocean Blue. It's called Pacific, Pacific Ocean, Ocean Blue. Blue. Okay, yeah. this is one of those records that the critics would have you believe is a lost masterpiece i think that's fair yeah. to say isn't it it seemed to go through a sort of critical re uh, reevaluation um with the hipsters in fact it appears in a thousand robert dimmery's a thousand and one albums you must hear before you die mojo's lost albums you must own 70 of the greatest albums of the 70s um it was listed at number 18 in gq's the 100 coolest albums in the world right now list <laughs> I bought it on the, the, the lavish reissue that came out uh, around. Yeah, same here. You did the same in the book form with the the, the, yeah, yeah. the unreleased album. I have to say, and I'm looking at the reviews here, five out of five on all music, Pop yeah. Matters, eight out of ten, Pitchfork Media, eight, to 8.5 out of ten, Uncut, five out of five, Spin, four out of five. It's a two out of five, possibly. It's about a two. I, th- I found it really quite a dreary ponderous record it's got none of the transcendent spiritual beauty of of his brother's best work what is it tim that's made people get so excited is it because it was the underdog record that nobody listened to at the time to a degree i think with love you it was because it was the brian's big return where he was suddenly writing everything again and it is insane there is a real sense of a mind revealing itself or a mind unravelling on Love You. So I understand why that's rated in the Beach Boys Pacific history. Ocean Blue isn't, isn't mad at Whereas all, is it? Whereas for me... It's quite pedestrian. Pacific Ocean Blue, it's like a really dull Stephen Stills solo album. Yeah. But without the gift that Stephen Stills has as a vocalist or musician... Or me- melodicist, no. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those albums that I've played again and again and again to grasp what it is that people hear, but it's always seemed very perfunctory, very dull. As you say, harmonically unadventurous. There are a couple of ballads that are good. And on the unreleased album, there are a couple of ballads that are actively beautiful and, again, quite cracked, and they appear on the L.A., album two okay. years later this album it was a wash with nothingness well we've certainly trashed that record tim haven't we <laughs> two it's it's kind of a two out of five for me too i, I mean i say a couple of nice tracks but nice ballads um the up-tempo songs particularly for me are terribly pedestrian i don't want to trash it anymore i mean <laughs> it's, it's kind of like in a way 
the more somebody tells you something is genius and you don't get it, the more you yeah. feel like you have to kick back in the opposite direction. I mean, so I kind of am overcompensating. It's not a bad record. It's not yeah. a bad record at all. But actually, I think you summed it up perfectly when you said it's like an average Stephen Still solo record. And yeah. by God, there was a lot of average Stephen Still solo There records. were indeed. Yeah. But they were never terrible. And this isn't terrible either. And it is that. It's like taking an average Stephen Stills record and you're going, my God, you've got to listen to it. It's in the 70 greatest album of the 70s. Yeah. And it, you're listening to it and you're thinking... It's not in the 70 greatest albums released that week in 1977. It's definitely not one of the 1,001 albums you need to hear before you die. Not even close. Let's just put it this way. If there was, if there was a battle, you know, between yeah. Beach Boys Love You and Dennis Wilson's Pacific Ocean Blue, would it be a straight KO in the first round for Beach Boys I, Love I You? I think it would. And they are, you know, the Beach Boys are weak on Love You. In some ways, they're fascinatingly weak, but with a terribly, terribly prissy punch, it would be a KO straight off. Isn't this interesting, though? Sometimes a glorious folly is much more entertaining than a perfunctory but adequate kind of, of course, effort. yeah. Uh, so what, I think what we're saying is the Beach Boys love... I mean, I haven't heard it yet, to be to caveat, I still haven't heard it, but it sounds <laughs> oh, to me... It. it sounds to me like it's rubbish, but it's rubbish in a really madly fascinating way that kind of is completely engaging. Was the Dennis Wilson album for me, it's, it's all right. That's the response. It's yeah. all right. It's right. The other response is, Why? So, right, why? Yeah. Now, equally, you ask why with Love You, but you ask it with an exclamation. Why? What the like, hell? How? What the hell were they thinking? Yeah, exactly. You're thinking, what the hell did they think they were doing? Whereas with Dennis Wilson's Pacific Ocean Blue, you just like... There is that feeling, why did you get out of bed to make it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Okay, we've really given that a kick in. We've, I mean, the poor bloke, he died within a year of making it. <laughs> We've really given it a kick in, Tim. I mean, listen, we both love the Beach Boys. I suppose if you're a Beach Boys, an absolute Beach Boys fanatic, this would be a fascinating kind of corner of, yeah. of the catalogue. And, and look, I've followed the Beach Boys since, you know, even they, they've done a few great things in the last 20 years. OK, let's move on. Uh, heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius. You've got one more entry here. Randy Newman's Little Criminals. Uh, I know nothing about Randy Randy Newman, so you're the Randy Newman uh, connoisseur here. It's really... Well, this was the album that really broke him. He'd been a critic's favourite up to this point. There are many, many striking albums. His debut, Randy Newman, with orchestra is wonderful. Actually, one of my favourite Newman-related albums is Nilsson Sings Newman. Where oh, Harry I love Nilsson that one. Yeah, that's takes beautiful. Takes his material. I mean... Yeah impeccable material impeccably rendered but the Newman originals are also compelling and um, you know I'm a big fan of his work and this was the album where he came to international fame and it's a really big production by his standards but there are still exquisite complex vignettes the thing about him you know I think he is one of, of rock's greatest lyricists and you know within a single lyric can tell entire life stories beautifully uh, and this album's no exception it's got you know baltimore is another wonderful piece that nina simone covered i think it's a great album but it's slightly frowned upon by newman fanatics because it was the one that brought him fame 
It's funny, isn't it, that with some artists and their fan bases, that the breakthrough is sometimes seen as some kind of betrayal. Let's move on, Tim. So very naturally move on to singer-songwriters. We've got an album which we've already talked about, actually, uh, in either the previous episode or the first episode, Roy Harper's Bullying a Ming Vars from, from this year. Um, I think we talked about it when we were talking about Songs from the Wood, the Jethro Tull, didn't we? It's having a similar kind of very English, bucolic yeah. kind of quality to it. Uh, one of my favourite Roy records, actually. You know, It's a lovely record. It's one of my favourites as well. It's I... funny. It's soulful. It's wise. It's, musically, it's, as, you, as you kind of pointed out, in many ways, it's the most lavish sounding record he made, isn't it? It's very rich. John I mean, Leckie, the... I think, produced John Yes, Leckie. he did, yeah. I mean, it's chordally very rich. The textures are very rich. So there's a kind of bucolic easiness. I suppose what's unusual in his catalogue, although some of the lyrics are quite political, musically, um, it has quite a relaxed feel. It's unusual that he almost seems at his most relaxed and happy during this period of turmoil for the rest of the country and during the era of punk. But I, I really like it as an album. But there's some quite bitter lyrics too. There's the, I mean, quite funny too, the, the beginning of the sidelong piece. One of yeah. these days in England, he's talking about, you know, I give the queen, every Thursday morning, I go and give the queen my autograph so she'll give me some money to live on, you know. Uh, and, and maybe, he, you know, I think probably Roy had been through some lean times. He was never a mainstream artist. He never crossed over into the mainstream. He never had the big hit records. Probably there was some, you know. I remember Roy in the sleeve notes of one of the reissues talking about how his managers his managers would turn up in the Rolls Royces yeah. and he'd still be driving the sort of broken down mini um while his management were driving around and he, he realized where the money was going and it wasn't mm. to him but it's also got one of his greatest pop songs I think one of these days in England mm. be, be, not a hit but a, a fantastic song and it's you know in many ways it's also I mean, we talked about how the progressive rock uh, artists in many ways were making some of their most important records in 1977. This is, in many ways, um, Roy still doing what he had always done, which is making these very elaborate, complex, progressive folk epics Mm. um, with... You know, there's a little bit more layering on this record, a little bit more to the arrangements. But in that sense, he's not doing anything different to what he was doing on I Life think, Mask or um, Stormcock, is he? It's texturally smoother. It's got a bit more of that 70s, yeah. yeah. There's almost a kind of Richard Wright, Wish You Were Here feeling to a lot of the keyboard playing, especially right. on the Epic, I find. Um, there's quite a strong Floydian influence to a degree but there um, always was and i think a lot of that was two ways wasn't it uh, yes yeah I, I think there always was that sort of floydy aspect to what he did uh in many ways he was the singer songwriter equivalent of what the floyd were doing you know if you you listen to those albums like stormcock and life mask mm. these sort of grand conceptual suites but the difference was they were predominantly in terms of musical forces they were predominantly played just on a guitar but in terms of their flow and their structuring, I think Floyd took a, quite a little bit from from Roy Harper, as mm. did Jimmy Page, of course, and, and Led Zeppelin took a fair bit from from Roy Harper as well, and Ian Anderson. Uh, Ian will very very honestly admit there was a period in the early seventies when he felt he was too influenced 
by Roy Harper. Um, parts of a passion play, and particularly the Chateau Diravel tapes, the the very Harper esque. So he's he was one of those guys that was always very influential. He was the musicians, yeah, musician, wasn't he? But never really broke through to a, a mainstream audience. But I love this record. I think after this record. There's a little bit of what we talked about with some of the other artists. You feel like he started to become a bit more confused about what he should be doing. Mm. And he made some attempts at more mainstream pop, slick, you know, kind of FM pop with saxophones and DX7 synthesizers. Um, But this is pre that. This is still Roy, very much organic, beautifully organic sounding, but still no less ambitious. Uh, possibly my favourite Roy Harper record maybe along with um, A Life Mask what's okay. your favourite Roy Harper record? It's difficult I mean this definitely yeah. is, is in the top two or three yeah. I think um, It's a phenomenal run isn't it? Very yeah I mean I I thought HQ is, is very very Brilliant. strong as well yeah. um, Life Mask obviously and I've got a very strong soft spot for Valentine I love it yeah well 12 Hours of Sunset. Mm. What a song that is. 